Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. On this episode of Newt's World, in April 2020, an urgent call was placed from a special forces operator serving overseas. The message, get Nizam out of Afghanistan now. Nizam was part of the Afghan National Army's first group of American trained commandos. He served alongside the U.S. Special Forces for over a decade. The message reached Nizam's former commanding officer, retired Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann and he sent out an SOS to a group of Afghan vets, Navy SEALs, Green Berets, CIA officers, USAID advisors. They all answered the call for one last mission, to save a former comrade and 500 other Afghans being targeted by the Taliban in the chaos of America's withdrawal from Afghanistan. Here to tell his story, I am really pleased to welcome my guest, Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann. His new book, Operation Pineapple Express, the incredible story of a group of Americans who undertook one last mission and honored a promise in Afghanistan, is out now. He's also the founder of The Hero's Journey, a nonprofit organization committed to helping U.S. and Afghan veterans. Scott, welcome, and thank you for joining me on Newt's World. Mr. Speaker, thank you again for having me on. I thought it'd be helpful for our audience if we could start with your career, because you spent almost 23 years in the Army, 18 of that in Special Forces and Special Operations. I should say, by the way, that my dad spent 27 years in the Army, 
and also retired as a lieutenant colonel, so I'm a genuine army brat. You spent 10 years in the 7th Special Forces Group deploying to Central and South America, Iraq, and Afghanistan, but you retired from the military in 2012. Why did you decide to retire? You know, to be honest, I had wanted to be a Green Beret since I was a 14-year-old kid. I'd met a Green Beret in my little town of Mount Ida, Arkansas. And when he told me what Green Berets did, how they worked by, with, and through indigenous cultures, I was a run of a kid and it sounded so amazing to me and it never, ever changed. It became my obsession. And so I loved every second of it. It's all I ever wanted to do. But when I got to be a lieutenant colonel, And, you know, I I did multiple tours in Afghanistan working with the Afghan people, the Afghan commandos, the Afghan villagers. And when I saw in 2013 really how we were getting away from working by, with, and through our indigenous partners, it seemed to me that we were moving away from that and the direction that we were going and, frankly, the level of careerism that was manifesting at the senior levels of our special ops and military leadership I knew I was done. I knew I could do more on the outside than the inside. And so even though I'd been selected for a battalion command, I decided to hang up the boots and to try to be an advocate for Afghanistan and for our veterans as a civilian. Well, it's a remarkable patriotism on your part. And by the way, I agree, particularly beginning in the Obama administration, there was a political tone being set in the senior officer corps that's, I think, very, very dangerous and which manifested in the summer of 2021 when there were decisions being made that were political rather than military. But what were your thoughts watching the withdrawal of the U.S. troops in 2021? It was heartbreaking. Like a lot of Green Berets and other special operators, I'd spent such a large part of my career in that country. We gave away our youth in that 20-year war. And I know you know this, but when the planes hit the towers and the Pentagon, I lost my Ranger buddy in the Pentagon on 9-11. You know, we all made a vow to ourselves that would never happen again, that we would never allow that to happen on our watch. We all felt a bit culpable for that. And we committed the rest of our careers to stopping al-Qaeda or any other group from ever having a safe haven in Afghanistan. And for Green Berets, we committed ourselves to building capacity in that country with the commandos, the Afghan special forces, the NMRG, the KKA, these amazing groups that became quite proficient in fighting al-Qaeda, ISIS, the Taliban. So to watch the Taliban, Mr. Speaker, on August 15th, strutting around Kabul International Airport wearing our gear, wearing our kit, driving our vehicles, holding our carbines with the optics on them. One of the most devastating things I've ever witnessed in my life. But it was a long process. I want to sort of get your reaction as we go through it. It's in May 2014 that Obama announces a plan to withdraw by the end of 2016. But it doesn't happen. And by August of 2017, Trump is warning that To quote him, a hasty withdrawal would create a vacuum the terrorists would instantly fill. Was there a significant difference in the approach to withdrawing in Afghanistan between Obama and Biden on the one hand and Trump on the other? Yes, there was. But to be completely candid, as a soldier, I was pretty underwhelmed by all of the administration's approach to the war in the sense that I don't feel that... Any of the administrations were deep enough on what what we, the soldiers and the Marines and the SEALs, others were dealing with in that country. I felt like it changed every administration and it became harder and harder 
for the operators on the ground to execute what was a constantly shifting set of goalposts. Now, that said, I will agree with you that the Obama administration's signaling the end was terrible for the work that we were trying to do. I don't agree with Mr. Trump's approach to the Doha agreement. I think the exclusion of the Afghan government was wrongheaded and didn't help. But then for the Biden administration's withdrawal, he owns that one fully. And the impact on not just the Afghan partners, but our national security is we haven't even begun to realize the impacts of that yet. Both in Vietnam and in Afghanistan, we didn't seem to be able to figure out what the code was for creating a government capable of taking on the enemy and surviving. I mean, we put a lot of money and a lot of manpower, took a pretty good number of casualties over a long period, and yet we still weren't able to create an Afghan army and an Afghan system that could stand up to the Taliban, just as in Vietnam, we couldn't create a civilian government capable of standing up to the Viet Cong and then ultimately the North Vietnamese army. What is your sense? Is it an impossible task? I mean, is it better for us to go in, kill as many people as you can and pull back out? Or is there a different strategy which would enable us to grow governments that are capable of sustaining themselves? That's a great question, Mr. Speaker. And I think it's the right question, honestly, that we should have been asking throughout the campaign in Afghanistan. And I think you're right to compare it in some ways to the Vietnam approach. And what I will tell you is this, and I wrote a book about this in 2014 as I was retiring called Game Changers, Going Local to Defeat Violent Extremists. And one of the things that we did as special forces in the special operations community, we got away from our by, with, and through approach after 9-11. We were so angry about how things went, looking for retribution, that we really almost defaulted to that what you just talked about, that surgical strike direct action approach, which it is useful. It is to have a counterterrorism approach is very, very useful when you're dealing with groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. However, my experience has been that in a country like Afghanistan, just like Vietnam, is a lot of these at-risk societies that are fragile or failed states, they are what we call status societies. They are more clan and tribal than they are contractual and top-down democracies like we see. And I think our failure to recognize that and to work within those constraints was a major, major problem. We started off the war the right way with this special forces group dropping in there and working by, with, and through the Northern Alliance, the Pashtun tribes. But rather than working at a low local, rural village level and just building capacity that was better than al-Qaeda, better than the Taliban and empowered, frankly, informal civil society in ways that they would get behind this thing. We tried to put a square peg in a round hole. We tried to create a liberal democracy from the top down. And what that ended up doing was it pushed a lot of your rural Afghans into the waiting arms of the Taliban as they seeped back into the country out of Pakistan. So, you know, I've seen a special forces approach of building capacity over the years. It's a long game. We've done it in Colombia, the Philippines, El Salvador. It works. But I feel like we abandoned that. And the other thing, Mr. Speaker, is we built an army, an Afghan national army in our own image. We made them a surgical strike force. We required them to have these high precision munitions and weapons and optics and intelligence platforms. And then they became reliant on that to keep the Taliban on their heels. And then we jerked it all away without any warning in June of 2021. So it was just a comedy of errors in how we built this thing up. And again, I believe a square peg in a round hole 
is probably the best metaphor I can come up with. At one point, I spent time with a Navy lieutenant commander who had been assigned to a district area right on the Pakistani border. And he described people who would come into town with their wives and their wife would sit facing the wall so she would not be tempted while the man shopped. And he said, now, when you go in and start explaining to those folks that your artillery and air power may kill their goats and that you intend to liberate their wives, you have guaranteed that you can't reach them. And so I wonder to what extent in some of these situations we're really underestimating the depth of disruption that our culture represents and therefore the depth of hostility people will be forced into so that they're not necessarily pro-Taliban, but they're against us destroying their culture. That's very well said, Mr. Speaker. I agree with you. And another angle I would take on that, I'll just give you this. When we got back to our roots in 2010, we started a program called Village Stability Operations. And honestly, it was a return to our roots as Green Berets. It was doing what Green Berets had done in Vietnam. It was called the CIDG program. You may remember it, but it was basically working with local villagers to stand up on their own. It's kind of a modern day Magnificent Seven. And it's really what Green Berets had been doing since the very beginning of our existence in the 1950s, even back to World War II with the OSS Jedbergs and Nazi-occupied Europe. But we had gotten away from that for the first 10 years of the war. So we moved our Green Berets out into the villages. We were living there. We grew our beards out. We donned indigenous clothing. And as I helped put that program into place, one of the things that I saw was, for example, I had a young captain call me out to his village where he was living in northern Kandahar. And he showed me that the Afghans were killing the earthworms. They were killing them with their thumbs. They were out in the field, smashing the earthworms into the earth with their thumbs. And when asked why they were doing that, they said they kill the crops. And we just looked at each other because we were both farmers. We had grown up in farming families and that made no sense. But as we started to dig into it, Mr. Speaker, what we found was that the Afghan informal civil society that was the Pashtun culture had been completely displaced and pushed out of the villages, starting with the Soviet occupation. The Soviets knew that the center of gravity in Afghanistan were the rural Pashtuns, particularly the egalitarian elders. So they either killed them or they pushed them out, 7 million in total. And so what had happened was these villagers had spent the bulk of their life in refugee camps in places like Quetta, and they had never lived in a village. But yet when they returned to those villages, their way of farming, their way of grazing, their way of timber management, soil management, even dispute resolution, because it was an oral history-based society on status, completely gone, completely for decades. And so now you had this new generation of Afghans who were trying to farm, trying to do the right thing, and we're driving past them in armored-up vehicles, throwing soccer balls out the window, saying, look at all the Afghans returning to the villages, right? So we never even picked up on this until 2010. And that's at an operator level. So you can imagine at a political bureaucratic level, they never got the joke. They never fully appreciated or understood, as you said, how something as quote unquote obvious as a liberal democracy and all its attractions wouldn't resonate down to that rural Pashtun farmer. It's a tragedy. And I worry that even our professional military isn't going to learn from it, just as I think ultimately the bureaucracy of the military didn't learn from Vietnam, that the patterns of bureaucratic structure overwhelm information that would force them to difficult decisions.
Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. (sighs) Spring is a time of renewal, so why not refresh your home with a little help from Blinds.com? Blinds.com invented a better way to shop for custom window treatments. There's no pushy salespeople in your home or inflated showroom prices. Free samples, free shipping, and our 100% satisfaction guarantee can put the spring back into your step and into your home too. Shop Blinds.com now and save up to 45%. Up to 45% off at Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hi, this is Newt. We have serious decisions to make about the future of our country. Americans must confront big government socialism, which has taken over the modern Democratic Party, big business, news media, entertainment, and academia. My new best-selling book, Defeating Big Government Socialism, Saving America's Future, offers strategies and insights for everyday citizens to save America's future and ensure it remains the greatest nation on earth. Here's a special offer for my podcast listeners. You can order an autographed copy of my new book, Defeating Big Government Socialism right now at Gingrich360.com slash book, and we'll ship it directly to you. Don't miss out on this special offer. It's only available for a limited time. Go to Gingrich360.com slash book to order your copy now. Order it today at Gingrich360.com slash book. You have written an important book, It's been a year since you withdrew from Afghanistan. And you say, this book is dedicated to the 13 U.S. service members who made the ultimate sacrifice in Kabul, Afghanistan, 
on August 26, 2021. Your sacrifice will never be forgotten, nor will your story. What motivated you to write the book? Oh, well, one of the things was what you just talked about with our senior officers and the levels of bureaucracy and will we learn? I have a son in the Army, Mr. Speaker. I have another son going into federal law enforcement. I have a lot of friends who aren't around anymore. You know, I talk to their families still to this day, like many of us do. And I have a lot of friends of mine like Chris, who was buried alive in his Humvee, blown up upside down and dug himself out with his bare hands. And he was so proud of being a soldier through this 20-year war. And now he told me the other day that he doesn't even tell people he's in the Army when he applies for a job. And I can't imagine that we would take this beautiful community of veterans, military family members, Gold Star family members who gave so much in this 20-year war, who traded so much to create an intelligence network, a partner network that is capable and was capable of keeping al-Qaeda at bay, who's reconstituting now, by the way, ISIS-K at bay, and did so for 20 years, how we could just take that and throw it away. You know, the relationships, the social capital that had we had bled for in so many ways, and frankly, the amazing contributions of our Afghan allies, the commandos, the Afghan special forces, the interpreters, the special mission unit aviators who had fought so hard, especially since 2014, when they took the lead. It was as if, Mr. Speaker, the government just turned the page, the nation just turned the page on the whole thing, and it never happened. And I just couldn't live with that. I wanted to write a book in the third person that would tell the stories of the Afghan allies who risked everything for freedom and the veterans that stood at their shoulder. That was my true motivation so that maybe Americans could hear the story of that and care a little bit more at a time when it seems like we're not even tracking this at all. And as you looked at all that, and part of what happened, as I understand it, was that you began receiving messages from a friend, an Afghan commando, about what was going on after Kabul fell. His name was Nizam. What was your relationship with Nizam? Well, you remember the program we were talking about earlier with the village stability. As I was helping to put that program in place, we actually stood up an organization, Mr. Speaker, called Afghan Special Forces, and they were built exactly like U.S. Special Forces. They were 15-person detachments. They would go into these rural villages, and they were able to work by, with, and through the indigenous villagers, the local police, the district governor, they were the most professional soldiers out there that could be the catalyst between formal and informal civil society. They were our true partner force and really the best way for us to work ourselves out of a job of long-term capacity with local solutions. And they were doing a great job. Nizam happened to be one of the first Afghan special forces that came out of that group. I spoke at their original graduation ceremony. The young staff sergeant came up to me at that time. He was 17 years old and told me how excited he was to be an Afghan special forces trooper. And I ended up going into combat with him in Kandahar province in 2010. I found him to be amazing at his ability, even though he was Uzbek, to engage Pashtuns, Tajiks, his local knowledge of things. And the reason is he had grown up so rough. His father had been lost in the Soviet war, killed as a Mujahideen. His mother sold into slavery. He slept in a barn until he was 11, lived on the streets of Takar until he joined the army. And then when he became a special forces trooper, he even went to our qualification course, Mr. Speaker. He went to our Green Beret course at Fort Bragg. He was shot through the face, warning a U.S. Special Forces patrol of an ambush, and then was back in the fight two weeks later. 
one of the most amazing human beings I ever met would send me a Christmas card every year, even after I got out in 2013, just wishing the best for my family. I would send him cards at Eid. We just stayed in touch. And when he started messaging me in early summer of 2021, that provinces were falling and that we were months away from a country's collapse, I knew he was right. And I knew that something would have to happen to get him out because that his special immigration visa was not going to happen. The government was not going to get him out of there. Why do you think a government which has allowed two million people to cross the southern border illegally has been so stingy and slow and I think deliberately unhelpful with people who had worked as our allies and risked their lives? I don't know. I've asked that question so many times, Mr. Speaker. I asked that question in the book you know, pretty loudly. I asked it on as many platforms as I can find. For example, the federation that I'm a part of, a group of volunteer special ops veterans called Moral Compass. There's studies out there that show, for example, that the Ukrainian refugees and the way that their SIVs have been processed is exponentially faster, heads and shoulders faster and tons more volume than our Afghan allies. And I think that's great for the Ukrainians. And I think it's wonderful that they've been able to get folks out who are in duress. But compared to the Afghan allies who we were with for 20 years, and some of these are the most hunted people you can imagine, commandos, special forces, female judges, and you literally have veterans cashing in their pensions and their kids' savings accounts to pay for safe houses, for babies to be born, food drops. And this has been going on for a year. And we've had no support from the government in terms of this. Is the problem in the State Department or where's the problem? I think on something like this, you have to go straight to the top. I believe this problem resides in the administration. I believe it starts with the president. If you listen to his comments about his disinterest in what the Afghan people are going through right now, they are hauntingly similar to when he was a young senator and his disinterest in the impact on the Vietnamese allies when we left there. I believe it starts there. He said it himself. The buck stops with him. And I believe the State Department, the Department of Defense, and the other organizations reflect that administration's position. And this is where, for me, I believe that, that the careerism and the bureaucracy start to really manifest in our senior leadership because there have been really no senior leaders who have looked at that and seen it for the moral injury that it is and the national security risk that it is and made a stand. I mean, that's what I was going to ask two different levels. One is the debt we owe these people, and the other is the signal we're sending around the world about why you shouldn't trust the United States. I mean, I'm surprised you don't have some three- and four-star officers who are standing up and testifying in Congress and putting pressure in the White House and just saying this policy is immoral and verges on criminal. When I interviewed all of the special ops veterans, Mr. Speaker, that I interviewed for the book, and it was dozens, the question they kept coming back to was, where are the generals? Where are the admirals right now? You know, we gave 20 years of our life to this. We were taught you do not leave a partner on the battlefield ever. We were taught that you have their back all the time. And then the very things that we were taught to do and frankly held to account very strictly was just completely wholesale abandoned by the very leaders who taught us this. And then the excuse is, well, it was a policy decision. Nothing I can do about that. But we're also taught as warriors and officers and senior leaders that not just legal orders, but when orders are immoral, right, being silent doesn't make you a quiet professional. It makes you complicit 
in the moral injury. So, and I'll just share this with you too. This is pretty telling, but, you know, I think it's important that we do talk about the national security implications of this. I mean, frankly, what country in the world is going to want to work with us at a partner level? We're not going to take on Russia and China unilaterally. We're going to work by, with, and through. But, you know, all they have to do is raise an eyebrow and say Afghanistan. But also at an asymmetric level, I've got friends in Afghanistan right now that are reporting very accurately that al-Qaeda has reconstituted. Zawahiri has been replaced with a very competent leader. You have foreign fighters from North Africa all the way to Southeast Asia openly training at former Afghan army compounds in Afghanistan right now. And so what's that going to look like? You know, it's almost like the next 9-11 commission is writing itself right now as we just literally ignore this. And I think the veteran population, Mr. Speaker, knows this. I think they know They knew when it happened that these precious networks that we took 20 years to build were the only way that we could hold the line there. And they've tried to preserve them and keep them intact to responsibly hand them off to the government. But there's been no dice on that. And then the final thing I'll say is, you know, what happens when my son or this generation of warriors responds to a terror attack that is inevitable, particularly this safe haven is now unfettered? What happens when we go back into Afghanistan and now our kids are facing commandos, special forces, Koskatehas troopers in our gear who were abandoned? They're not going to be facing, you know, welcoming Pashtun tribes and nomads and Northern Alliance. They're going to be facing tens of thousands of operators who were abandoned on the battlefield and who are well-armed, well-equipped, and well-trained. And no one wants to talk about that. But that's our reality if our leaders don't wake up and look at what they've sown here and listen to their veterans on this one and adjust their policies. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. 
No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play. In the case of Nizam, he talks with you, you get involved. What actually happened to him? He was staying in his uncle's house and we needed to move him across the city. We knew the Taliban were sending him texts. We know where you are. They were peering in his uncle's window. His uncle was about to toss him because he was compromising the rest of the family in Kabul. So he said to me, brother, I've got nowhere to go. And for me, that was it. I didn't want to get involved in this stuff again, to be honest with you. I'm a 54-year-old playwright. I'm not exactly the you know number one draft pick for you know personnel recovery these days. But we decided to help. I called up some buddies of mine who were still on active duty who had fought with Nizam. I called up Congressman Mike Waltz, who I fought with in Afghanistan, and a few other Washington insiders. And we put a little team together and we worked remotely to be his eyes and ears. We moved him across the city in a nondescript taxi driven by a Pashtun driver. He navigated his way through the crowd. And then when he got within about four feet of the fence, the Marines were there. He had no paperwork, no way to get through, no visa. On a Hail Mary, we had a phone number to a diplomat on the inside. We called it, explained the situation, and his phone was being blown up. He was pretty impatient. But we told him, we said, this guy has fought with us. He has bled with us. He's been shot through the mouth. He went to our Green Beret qualification course, and he is four feet outside your perimeter right now, and he's going to be swinging from a lamppost by sundown. And the diplomat, JP, got real quiet. He said, you know, I was a Green Beret before I was a diplomat. They're getting ready to throw your boy out. So tell him to say pineapple right now as loud as he can. So we're all screaming at him on the phone to say pineapple. And Nizam is Mr. Prim and Proper. So he wouldn't scream it out. He just walked over to one of the special operators at the gate. And he said, sir, I'm the pineapple. And the guy says, you're the pineapple? He said, I'm the pineapple. He said, go right down that corridor there and we'll get you on an airplane. And now he lives about a mile and a half from me in Riverview, Florida. He's got his three kids with him, his wife, and he is a part of my nonprofit, The Hero's Journey, and helping me bring other Afghan veterans home. So over the next 96 hours, somehow a group of 150 volunteers from the different services all worked together and actually helped over 700 at-risk Afghans to get to the airfield and gain entry into the gates. That's an amazing, spontaneous response. It really is, Mr. Speaker. The craziest thing about it was some people we knew each other, some people we had never met, but we all came together in this signal chat room, and all of them were working some version of Nazam. All of them had interpreters, plus their families were commandos or special forces they had served with. And so what we ended up doing was we had a former Green Beret turned Syracuse school teacher named Zach, whose hero was Harriet Tubman. And he came up with an idea for an underground railroad. And what we did was we looked at the terrain. There was an open sewage canal and a four foot hole in the fence that was manned by a company commander and a first sergeant from the 82nd Airborne, the White Devils, who were looking for work, looking to do more. And we all connected and we designed this apparatus that we called the Pineapple Express. So what we would do is the veterans would vet these Afghan commandos and their families and whoever was coming through, and then they would pass pictures and data over to Captain Folta and First Sergeant Kennedy, who would then have a green chem light, then they would jump in the canal. They would find that green chem light. They would show a picture of their pineapple. 
They would answer certain bona fide information and then get pulled through that four foot hole in the fence. And that's what the whole book is about, is the amazing men and women and volunteers working together to manipulate that four foot hole on some of the worst conditions on earth. And you helped save 700 people who might well have been killed by the Taliban. I think we did. Those numbers are pretty accurate. And I have to say that there were all kinds of groups doing the same kind of work and their numbers were even higher. I do believe, and Mick Mulroy says, this former CIA operative says that, you know, a very small percentage of the so-called greatest airlift in history were actually the right people. And that's not a discredit against the crewmen and the Marines and the Army soldiers who stood watch and tried to make it work. It was more of the policy approach to it. But what I will say is, and Mick would agree with this, is that of those who did make it that were vetted, that were the most at risk. I think you could say that the bulk of them were there because of these volunteer groups who knew who they were, they knew where they were, and they trusted us to present them responsibly to those young warriors on the gate who was looking at a sea of thousands trying to figure out who was who. So you turned your home in Tampa into a virtual war room. What did your family think of that? (laughs) My wife and I have been married for 26 years, and she knows She's been on the Green Beret journey the whole time. My boys have never known anything but dad at war. And my youngest son, Braden, was moving into his college dorm. And I had promised him, you know, he was my last. He was our baby before we were empty nesters. I'd promised him that I would be there for that move because I wasn't there for his brothers. And when Nizam got in and my phone started blowing up with other people wanting to be involved in this, my phone was just buzzing and buzzing and buzzing. Monty and Braden were standing together. And my wife just smiled at me and Braden smiled and he said, it's okay, dad, we know what you got to do. They've always been that way. You know, our military families, in my assessment, I mean, you're a military child. They are our greatest treasure. They are the ones who really endure the sacrifice and cost of war, particularly this modern war that lasted 20 years. No one ever tells their story. But the way that our military families allowed our operators and warriors to do what they had to do for this war is epic. And the way that my family supported me and I think the other pineapple shepherds, I hope I do justice to them in the book because they are really amazing human beings. I always tell people that actually the whole family serves. They do. That's a fact. And the fact that for 20 years, our families endured so much. And that's one of the reasons that I wrote a play about the war, because I didn't feel like the military family story was even known because such a small percentage serves. Well, even fewer people know what the spouse and the children go through. I think that's right. On a different front, you do talk heavily about the importance of technology in this operation. And it is kind of amazing how much information you were able to move so quickly and how precise it was. Could you have gotten this to work without technology? I don't think so. I don't think it would have worked the same way. And remember also that most of our volunteers were special ops veterans. So we're very accustomed to managing remote operations. We're very accustomed to going into ambiguous situations and creating clarity by over communicating and using flat, what we call flat comms. So something like a signal app. And the way we set it up was we had the main room where everyone was in there in that chat room. And so you're texting and and what you could do is if you had one commando and his family over at Northgate, another commando and his family over at Abbeygate, their shepherds are texting with them. 
And so they're getting real-time situational awareness. They're dropping pins on where Taliban checkpoints are. And then all of a sudden, alert comes into the main room. Hey, Abbey Gate just opened. Word is it's going to be open for 10 minutes. Okay, I'm moving my people from North Gate. I'll loiter here. And it's just this amazing, flat, collaborative approach of situational awareness. But yet it's leveraging the relationships and trust, old school communication skills that were built over 20 years, bringing it all together. And I think that was really what made it work was it was this amazing combination of technology and social capital managed by a group of veterans who were not afraid to step into the arena when nobody else was coming. It's a fascinating story. And I want you to know that we're recommending your book, Operation Pineapple Express, the incredible story of a group of Americans who undertook one last mission in honor to promise in Afghanistan. I'm encouraging everybody listening to this to get a copy. It's going to be on our show page. And I want to thank you for joining me as we look back on the one-year anniversary of our tragic withdrawal from Afghanistan. I hope everyone listening will take some time to remember the 13 U.S. service members we lost on August 26, 2021, and to honor all the men and women who served in the war in Afghanistan both on the American side with our allies and with the Afghans who were on our side. And I hope people will also bring pressure to bear on the White House. It is a disgrace and an embarrassment to the United States and historically tragic that we have a president who doesn't care about people who risk their lives as allies of the United States. And I hope that everybody listening to this will let it be known that that's un-American, it's intolerable for us to abandon and leave behind people who were our partners and risk their lives. And I want to thank you, Lieutenant Colonel Mann, for your patriotism, your professionalism, and your commitment. And I hope everyone will get a chance to see your play. Thank you so much, Mr. Speaker. I appreciate it. And thank you for always standing up for our veterans. And I hope people will check in on their veterans and military families right now and remind them that what they did mattered and that it was not in vain. Thank you to my guest, Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann. You can get a link to buy his new book, Operation Pineapple Express on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Gingrich 360 and iHeartMedia. Our executive producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our producer is Rebecca Howell, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. Right now, listeners of Newt's World can sign up for my three free weekly columns at gingrich360.com newsletter. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. 
I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350 plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio Music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.